Hello, welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm Bill Chamberlain. Today, we have an interview with director Robert Shea, who directed The Last Mimsy, which will be shown on Saturday, January 11, 2014, at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library. Mr. Shea was founder and CEO of New Line Cinema, which produced Nightmare on Elm Street, Boogie Nights, and Memento. Before we begin the interview, due to a technical difficulty, we were unable to record the opening question. The interview began with this question. The last Mimsy is based on a short story, Mimsy Were the Boar Grows, by Henry Kuttner and C.L. Moore. What was the attraction of taking this short story and turning it into a motion picture? We will proceed with Mr. Shea's answer in progress. Until the parents feel like they're completely alienated, but of course they still feel the parental love and, and, uh, and loyalty to their kids. And they have a, in the story, they have a psychologist friend who's trying to help them and guide them who doesn't understand what's going on either. And they one day create a contraption out of just stuff that's around the house and step into it and disappear. I wasn't, in fact, thinking about turning it into a motion picture until a producer named Michael Phillips came into our office who was an acquaintance of mine and had a pretty distinguished career. He produced Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Taxi. I think taxi driver. Yes. But anyhow, he's he, and he was also, as I said, a friend of mine. And he had just bought the rights to the story and actually wanted brought in a young director named Brian Singer to he wanted to develop it with. When I heard that he was going to do this, of course, I recalled this is one of my favorite science fiction stories, and I was a big science fiction fan as a kid. So I said, well. You know, I think we should do this, but I mean, I, I don't want to let the opportunity go by it. We don't need to have some brand new director jump in the middle of this. I, I'd like to take a shot at developing it. And that's when huge problems arose. But to answer your question, that was the genesis of moving it into a motion picture. On the audio commentary, you stated it took 13 years of development before it became a movie. And could you discuss what a few of the major problems were and why it took so long? The real major problem at the beginning was that the story ends where the kids disappear. And even though one never knows what makes a successful movie, no matter how experienced they are, we just thought that that was a really bad idea that would leave a big hole in the audience's emotional reaction after they walked out of the theater. What do you mean the kids disappear? Where do they go? What happened to them? And nobody could figure out the answer to that question. I mean, we had plenty of drafts with with people they, having them go to some strange fantasy place or having one of the kids go and take his sister with him or try to bring his parents along. I mean, it was it, we went every permutation you could think of, and we just c couldn't find a uh, a proper structure for the story. The writers that were being hired, mostly by the people who, I was, who were working with me, obviously writers that I was familiar with, and unfortunately they were all rather expensive. So we started building up a, a, a huge deficit in terms of what we were paying for these scripts, and we were getting nowhere. So after a period of time, you have to either make the film or write the investment in the in the development off, and it was reaching millions of dollars, and we didn't want to have that on our balance sheet or on our earning statement. So we kept trying harder and harder to find a 
a writer who we thought would really nail it. And we must have had five writers, I, I think, at least, and all of whom did multiple drafts. And the one writer that I really wanted was Bruce Joel Rubin because he had won an Academy Award for Ghosts. He happens to be from Detroit, where I'm from. We were actually friends as, as young kids. And he is a big science fiction fan and was rather enthusiastic about the story, but was working on something else at the time and couldn't really take the job. But it turned out that he and Michael Phillips happened to be great friends in a moment of synchronicity. And Michael Phillips talked him into agreeing to take on the writing assignment. And we were hoping that he would come up with something that could uh, could make this work. But quite frankly, as being head of the company, I actually was as concerned about earning back the money that we had already invested in in, in the development as I was in making a you know the perfect motion picture, so I really felt it was kind of almost a, a a corporate decision as well as a creative one. I've read the original short story, as you said, the children disappear at the end, and I always kind of felt the short story was more geared to adults. But when the movie's out, it's essentially a movie for the whole family. It's a family film. Why did you want to take that direction with the movie? Well. You nailed it completely because that was exactly the second problem that we encountered. And I never actually realized this, although people were suggesting it to me, especially after we finished the film and started showing it to audiences, that because this entire film is really made from the kid's point of view, it's extremely difficult to turn it into an adult Movie. I mean, at best, as you you kindly characterized it, it was a movie for the whole family. But it certainly wasn't a kind of like classic science fiction film, because we were looking at everything from the kids' point of view. So I was somewhat deluding myself. I have to admit that the, I thought, you know, obviously the best I could do, which would be fantastic, was get it close to something like E.T., which really did. It wasn't done consciously, but the story, as Bruce ended up writing it, really was told from the kid's point of view, just as E.T. was. And that although E.T. and Spielberg tried to add an adult element with the mother being a divorcee and having her own problems, but, I mean, it really was a kid's movie and a science fiction. Of course, it, it had the added very important additional storytelling component of E.T. itself. So that was much more fascinating than, you know, a, a, a rabbit. But that's what we were left with, and we tried to deal with it the best we could because it turned out that well, everybody really liked the film in terms of uh, test screenings that we had. But it was there were lots of of issues that mothers and fathers both had with the with the way the film was edited and the scenes that we included or didn't include that I really had to bite a, a big bullet personally and acknowledge that it was a kind of more of a kid's film and really, you know, and kids seemed to be the most enthusiastic about it. And there's really nothing wrong with a successful kid's film that parents can take their children to and not feel embarrassed or concerned that it was too complicated for their, for the whole family. But that's just how it came out. Along with The Last Mimsy, I watched your short movie that you directed, Image, and your other movie you directed, The Book of Love, and they all have the theme of reality versus fantasy, and I'm just curious, what was your attraction to that theme? 
first of all, I appreciate you doing uh, your, your your due diligence and homework. I guess uh, that's uh, it's kind of touching, but I, I guess it's just one of the things that that constantly interests me. And as you can see from image, which was actually the first real effort that I I, I made, the concept of film representing reality and seeming so real itself as opposed to what's really real is kind of a philosophical point of view that I find fascinating. And the whole trick of movie making is to try to lure the audience into that space that they didn't know existed and become really emotionally involved with this storytelling or the characters that are being represented. And I think that that's a pretty challenging and very interesting way to spend your professional life. While we're on the topic of reality versus fantasy, you're the executive producer on the upcoming The Mortal Instrument, City of Bones, the young adult books by Cassandra Clare. This has the theme of reality versus fantasy. Is this what attracted you to these books? Well, I, I suppose when I read the synopsis of the books that somebody had suggested to me, it was more about a story and a theme that I thought would be interesting and attractive to a strong movie-going audience, which was younger people from the ages of, say, 14 to 25. And it particularly, in this case, uh, pertains to women, although there is a big romantic element that uh, men might find interesting, and there's lots of demons and stuff that that are intrinsic to these kinds of uh, young adult novels. In the case of that story, it's the whole story kind of mixes up uh, fantasy and reality, but in the context of the story, the the heroine discovers that she's part of a world that's different than the world that she thought she was part of, and that it's, it's a much more dangerous and challenging and exotic world than just living a life as a high school senior or something like that and having a boyfriend. And so what happens in the course of the story and in the course of all the stories is she grows up from being just an ordinary teenager into like a, a young warrior and heroine that vanquishes all kinds of bad things and saves the day for her world. So there was an element to, I, and I hadn't really realized it until you brought it up, but uh, I guess to the, my uh, intrinsic fascination with, with reality and fantasy. And when I th- think back on the, the things that have, have compelled me over my course of my life so far, there has been a lot of that mixing up of reality and fantasy, which I think is very thrilling, but that's the same kind of thrill that you get when you go to an amusement park. I mean, everybody wants, to, when you have a, you know, a drink too many or something, if you don't get sick, but that you, 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 you get yourself into another world, and sometimes it's, it's fun to be able to be a, a world traveler in that sense, to be able to get into other realms and, and, and other pseudo-realities that will surprise you and, and challenge you for a while. In your audio commentaries, you discuss testing groups for your movies, and what are the pros and cons of doing this? Well, I tend to make mistakes by listening too much to other people, being even too collaborative with potential audiences and their point of view. And I think that in some ways... I may have done a disservice even to Mimsy and, and to the Book of Love because I would get these audience reaction cards that come back after you have a screening and 10 people say, I mean, for instance, in the scene between Rain Wilson and Catherine Hahn, when he gets up in the morning, he actually got up 
I mean, he wasn't wearing pajama bottoms, so he didn't see anything that was too terrible. But he, he walks to the refrigerator and bends down, and you see his bare butt. So the MPAA was fine with still giving that a PG-13. They didn't think that was too salacious. And I thought it was a very funny moment. Here's this, you know, grown-up couple, and they're just living their lives. But we had about 10 mothers who said, or fathers too, said, I don't know why we're looking at Rain Wilson's butt. So I actually, you know, I thought it was a funny moment, and I went to a lot of trouble to get Rain to agree to do it, which he, he, he certainly did. But at the end of the day, we decided to optically, you know, using special effects and, and put on a pair of leopard skin underpants for him just because we, I didn't want to offend. I didn't know how many people I was offending with that particular moment. And the, the, the con of listening to all that stuff and doing that testing is you sometimes become beholden to it. And it's very hard, especially in, in, with all the tension that goes on and, and the amazing amount of money that's invested, plus your personal investment in creative energy and, and endeavor, that you really want to please people. I mean, that's the point of the, I don't, I don't want to scare people or turn people off or get lousy reviews and things like that. So you can sometimes err towards the opinion of a bunch of people who don't really know what they're doing anyhow. And sometimes you have kids that write all kinds of nasty things and they just, and I mean, you get a, a, a very mixed bag. And so I do, as I went my way through my own creative life, I still, I'm thinking more and more about staying true to my own creative vision and really ignoring some of that unqualified criticism that the people who come to see a free movie uh, you know, are asked to offer. So it's a, a double-edged sword for sure. In the last Mimsy, uh Timothy Hutton wears a Columbia Law sweatshirt, and you stated you went to Columbia Law. Could you discuss briefly how you went to law school and then to film distribution? Well, uh, I was fortunate enough to know from a, when I was a very young kid what I wanted to do, and I was doing it ever since I was five or six years old, uh, which was essentially uh, entertaining other people and turning people on, which I really enjoy doing. And I first wanted to be an actor, and I uh, fortunately, in the nick of time, realized I was terrible, so I stopped doing that after a few years. And then I wanted to be a photographer, and I did that for a while. And then I'd made... Uh, actually when I was 13 or 14 years old, a little training film for my dad who had a supermarket about how packing boys should pack up their, their groceries for their, their customers. Like, for instance, you don't put the eggs on the bottom kind of thing. From that point on, I, I, making movies was really the kind of thing that I directed myself towards, and I made a, a bunch of short little films and things like that. When it, They didn't even call it independent cinema. They called it underground filmmaking. But when my dad was a, uh, was, as I say, he owned some supermarkets with his family, and and he was basically a marketing guy, but he had also gone to law school. He was the one son that was chosen to go to law school, which he did. And he always felt that it was a good tool bag to have along. He never practiced law either. But when I told him that I wanted to go to Hollywood and become a film director, he very, very persuasively began an argument with me about going to law school. And so after a lot of close to heated and emotional discussion about uh, how I was going to pursue the rest of my life, I wanted to be a film director and he wanted me to go to law school. And so as I joke, we compromised and I went to law school. 
So uh, that's kind of how I ended up there. I, I wasn't very happy in law school, and it, it, it is a valuable tool bag, but there's nothing more valuable than time. And what I felt was essentially wasting a good deal of my three years I spent there has often given me cause for pause, but so it was. A little bit like going, like having a test screening. Sometimes you give in to the wrong people. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned you were part of the underground film movement, and then you're part of the independent film movement. What would you say was the difference between the two? Well, it's just that underground filmmaking was really kind of goofy. I mean, uh, I mean, uh, you know, crazy and semi-crazy people. This was the the era of psychedelics and uh, and people doing strange things, you know, under the covers. And I mean, I lived in the East Village, sort of, and there was uh, the, uh, the Bridge Cinema. There were there was Jonas Makis. There was a filmmakers co-op, and all of this stuff was really kind of off the wall, kind of gonzo, hadn't even come on the radar of legitimate industry. And eventually, uh, we, those kids, all grew up and started realizing they wanted to make a living too. And and, and many of us drifted into the film business, into the real business part of it. And so what really happened is underground filmmaking sort of migrated into legitimate, what they call independent filmmaking, which just wasn't filmmaking that was sponsored by the by the major companies. In New Line Cinema in the early days, you used to distribute to army bases, college campuses, and prisons. You also had your own theater called the Olympia. With such eclectic screenings, do you have any memorable screenings that you remember? Yes, I remember screening Sympathy for the Devil, the Godard film with the Rolling Stones that was really pretty boring, it was really kind of highly left-wing track that Godard had, is famous for doing anyhow, but we didn't buy it for Godard, we bought it for the Rolling Stones. And seeing an audience barely break, almost breaking the doors down to get in and put their money down to see the movie, and at the end of the movie we're sitting outside and I see the doors fly open and they couldn't wait to get out of there. So it was really, it was really a, a, a case of, of good marketing but not very good filmmaking in my opinion. You know, uh, Pink Flamingos at midnight was it was a constant uh, amusement. If you ever saw Pink Flamingos, you'd understand why. Yes, I have. <laughs> okay, well, you might maybe you were amused and maybe you weren't, but yeah, at midnight with with uh, psychedelic substances in in uh, in uh, very substantial view, it came close to Rocky Horror Show and, and being a little bit far out. Now stuff like that. There's uh, those are those are a couple. I, we're still. John Waters and I are still uh, liable for arrest in Suffolk County in, in New York because a theater screened. I mean, I think it's, this is all sort of uh, anecdotal now, but at the time they, there was a warrant out for our arrest if we ever went into Suffolk County because a theater screened uh, Pink Flamingos and, or maybe it was Female Trouble or one of John Waters' classics. So things like that. It's, it's been a fun time. <laughs> the final question, you've made or released a wide range of movies, everything from Austin Power, Rush Hour, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have Boogie Night, Seven, Hoodwig, and The Angry Inch. Uh, do you have a philosophy about making movies, an overall philosophy? Yeah, my overall philosophy is I, uh, I, I want to either be provocative and or entertaining. And so there are some movies that I think are going to be entertaining that I don't necessarily philosophically embrace. 
not that I've, they've fallen below my moral threshold, but there are movies that, uh, and don't forget you, you, or you did forget, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which was really one of our, our most important, uh, productions in terms of moving the company forward and really being the kind of movie that delighted a very broad range of, of, of moviegoers. And part of the philosophy also has been as a company grew to pay attention to the tastes and instincts of, of colleagues. Movies like, uh, uh, Boogie Nights. I mean, I I was really not terribly enthusiastic about it because when the script came in, it was like 180 pages, and Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to make, you know, a four-hour movie, and I just knew that, you know, from a business perspective, I mean, maybe there's some aesthetic reason for doing that. There, we were close to that with Lord of the Rings, and there was a reason for it, but we didn't really need to have the movie be that long, and I thought that it was going to be a detriment to the to the success of it. And Paul and I had uh, several substantial arguments about the movie, not so much that everything he did wasn't good, because it all was, but there was just too much of it. I mean, it's like having a 16-course meal. You just don't want to do that, even if it's really good. So that was one thing. Uh, Robert Altman and I had a big disagreement over... Uh, over um, not quartet, but uh, shorts. Uh, uh, oh, shortcut. shortcuts. Shortcuts, yeah. He actually came up to me about a couple of years later, and we were sitting together at a party and said, you know, you were really right. I should have cut out 20 minutes from the film. But filmmakers, in that case, talking about doing audience testing and cards, you know, if you can, you can be too much in love with what you do and you get narcissistic about it, and then you don't listen to anybody, and you shoot yourself in the foot. And, and both Paul who's a, and Robert, both incredibly talented filmmakers, sometimes aired on the side of, I know what I'm doing, and, you know, to heck with you, uh, I, I don't care, because this is, I, I think filmmaking is much more of a craft like architecture than it is an art like painting. And like architecture, for instance, it, it has a specific practical purpose, but it can reach up to, fine art if it's done with with great finesse. If a filmmaker starts off thinking of himself as an artist, I think he's he's doing himself a disservice because he doesn't pay attention to what the purpose of of the medium is, what the medium was designed for. My philosophy is trying to mix the two, to do something unique and interesting. And I think that things that are unique and interesting in and of themselves, like Memento, for instance, which was uh, Nolan's first movie, you know, are, are very worthwhile doing so long as you don't overdo it to the extent like Andy Warhol and make an eight-hour movie of the Empire State Building. I mean, that may be a statement, but it's not an amusement. So that's I, I, try, it's, I try to make a synthesis between these two things. Well, I just want to say thank you for doing this for us. Uh, really appreciated it, and good luck on future projects. Okay, well, I appreciate your diligence and your questions were good and well-researched. And I've been to Nashville once. We actually tested a film there, so I really had fun in the city for a couple of days. And uh, I congratulate you guys. On, I'm sure you're, you're, you're very good at your job. Okay, thank you so much. That means a lot coming from Take you. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. I would like to thank Mr. Shea for taking the time from his busy schedule to do the interview with us. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library 
in the main auditorium on Saturday, January 11, 2014 at 2 p.m. to see The Last Mimsy. Remember, it's free.